Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroh, trusted authority in executive and transactional liability and founder of Rubicon M&A Insurance Services. Now a proud member of the Liberty Company Insurance Broker Network. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by David Kimbrell, founder of the Ingenuity Group. For over four decades, David and his colleagues have been the leaders in buying, selling, and advising architecture and engineering companies throughout the U.S. Uh, David, it's a pleasure to have you here. I mean, when we talk about you know specialists and niches of niches, this is a fine one. So welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Well, now, uh, before we get into everything about the Ingenuity Group, let's start with you. What brought you to this point in your career where you are the U.S. leader in M&A for architects and engineers? Well, I appreciate you you pumping me up like that. I don't know if we're really the, the leader. We, I like to think that we do a good job, and we, we uh, probably uh, like to think we lead in our little uh, micro niche of architecture, engineering, M&A. But I uh, really appreciate you pumping pumping me up. Just keep going. You know, if you got any more things to say, I'm, I'm all ears. Oh, my God, how do we get here? I was thinking about this uh, before this started. Well, I got here through a very nonlinear path. Uh, it, it, a lot of it's luck. A lot of it is just gut uh, entrepreneur, you know, feelings that you act on. But uh, I think it really kind of all started. Uh, I just so happened to be lucky enough to get out of uh uh, graduate school, University of Wisconsin, uh, in May of 1982, which was the first in the same month that the EPA, had, which had done nothing for the, its 10 years other than Superfund, they issued a, a, its first mandate. Uh, everybody was waiting, what's the EBA going to ever do? What, what are they in existence for uh, without putting out mandates? They finally put out a mandate, and it was the craziest thing. Uh, they wanted all the public schools in the United States to comply with 15 uh, very highly technical items uh, dealing with asbestos, sprayed on asbestos and pipe insulation and whatnot, uh, as it was exposing workers and children in the classrooms. But it wasn't very well thought out, uh, the regulation, because the the, engine, uh, the uh, school districts, they didn't really know how to deal with this. Nobody knew what asbestos was. Uh, there was no, at that time, there was no environmental industry. Um, when I got out, I got out with uh, what's called environmental and public health degree because nobody really, there wasn't an environmental industry to go into. But we all now, now that the industry is mature, we all know that uh, that that was the beginning of everything. The 80s, that decade was the first decade uh, where everybody was trying to find their way. And um, I went to work with a, a, a small engineering firm right out of graduate school. And just a few months into it, well, when I got there, First thing the owner said, he says, uh, David, you, you know anything about this asbestos stuff? And I said, not a darn thing. And he goes, great, you're going to be in charge of this program. Uh, okay. And anyway, we figured this out. We figured out how to do this little one-stop shop, provide the training, provide the laboratory, you know, provide the engineering part. And so I, I took a gamble. This is where the entrepreneur comes in. I don't know if I'd be quite this risky today, but, you know, when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're, you're just, you've got a lot of guts. And I just had this feeling that this asbestos thing, which by then had begun to spread to lead and underground storage tanks and all that. 
But I thought this whole asbestos thing, I think it's going to hit the colleges and universities. It's going to hit hospitals, mm-hmm. the places where you, you, you can't really have this stuff being exposed. And although the mandate never extended to that, everybody thought that. So what we did in, I moved the company to Kansas City from Mississippi and uh, put out a, um, I put out a letter. It was the, it was the most brave thing I think I've ever done. And with our brand new IBM Select, uh, not Select, Selectric, the uh, uh, IBM 283 PC and a dot matrix printer, mm-hmm. we put out a letter to every school or every college president in the United States. 5,000 mm-hmm. letters went out. We burned wow. up two or three dot matrix printers printing out these, these letters. And we basically said, came up with this idea of how I could do a random selection of a couple of buildings on the on the college campus and extrapolate the results to project what the whole might look like by wow. carefully selecting. And so we put I put out these letters. We spent all the money. We had made $100,000 in the first six months of the company. We'd netted 100,000. We took about 50 or 60,000, bought the computer, did this marketing, uh, put out all these letters and and my secretary and I sat and waited for the phone to ring to see if the gamble was going to pay off. Mm-hmm. It didn't ring for several days. But when it did ring, uh, her name was Dottie. She came in my office and said, David, uh, I don't know if this is a, a joke or not, but but I've got the president of Harvard University uh, on the phone. And, <laughs> and sure enough, it was the president of Harvard University. And he, just like we, everybody thought this thing was going to be hitting the schools. Mm-hmm. And he says, what's the gimmick? What's I, I got your letter. What's the catch? You're going to come up here and do this free of charge? That's what I offered. Free of charge. Mm-hmm. We just do it. And I, I said, uh, well, no, that's what we're going to do. We just hope that, you know, if you like the results, that you'll give us a contract to do the whole campus. Um, and then he says, well, let me see. And, he, and I go, no, no, wait a minute. There's one more thing. And he goes, I knew it. There's something. I said, you know, just for, for we're a small company, just for us to save money, could you could you put me up in the visiting professor's dorm so I don't have to get a hotel? <laughs> and and sure enough, he says that's it. Wow. Went up to Boston, used some of that little bit of money we had left. Went up to Boston, stayed in the visiting professor's dorm, did the study, wrote the report, and Harvard University hired us. And then MIT, then Yale, then Princeton, all the Ivies. Uh, the hardest, and that was our start. Wow! And so then everybody wanted uh, wanted uh, us to come do this for them. Then it was San Francisco State, then American University, and just one university after another. And all of a sudden, we're growing and we're making money and we're having to hire people. And fast forward, um, fast forward, uh, we grew, uh, started that little company with a twenty thousand dollar loan. Uh, I had to get a cosigner. That's why the name was Hall Kimbrell, because Hall was the cosigner, and I gave him four months of the company. But he, um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, fast forward seven years later, in the last week of 1982, uh, sorry, 1989, I sold that company to a large uh, engineering company. And by mm-hmm. then, we had grown from myself to 1,150 employees. Uh, 30 operations, over 100 million in in 80s revenue, which is about 200. That's, that's real money. That's real money back then. 100, yeah. 105 yeah. million, very profitable. Sold it to a large company, and then, but um, but to kick that off, it doesn't get any better than this. It, to kick that off because of that very, I guess, quite innovative 
approach to dealing with the environmental uh, issues and the stuff that was facing us then, uh, I was uh, lucky enough to be awarded the Entrepreneur of the Year for the United States. And in 1988, I uh, had a Rose Garden ceremony at the White House by President wow. uh, Reagan. It didn't get any better than that from a business no. standpoint. But uh, yeah, it was actually a small, it's a small business pageantry. They roughly call it, they use, it's called a small business person year, but they call it the Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so so that helped. And then I sold the company, had a bunch of money, didn't know, you know, what am I supposed to do now? Well, the only thing I knew by then was environmental, environmental engineering, architecture, because we, you know, we'd grown, we had a lot of architects, we had a lot of engineers, uh, laboratory stuff. So rather than trying to do something new, I said, well, we'll just, why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? Now, when we built uh, the Hall Kimbrell, that was uh, about, of those 30 operations, about four or five but were by acquisition. Uh, we bought a small, you know, architecture firm in Milwaukee and a small one, another engineering firm in uh, Washington, D.C. But most, a lot of them were project offices that we just grew up. Mm -hmm. But I didn't really realize that we were dealing with mergers and acquisitions. But when, when I started after selling the company and taking this cash and we decided to do some more building of environmental engineering type companies. And actually, we also did a pharmaceutical uh, drug development company, but uh, I just designed it out uh, like common sense would say. And what I, I didn't realize what I was designing at the time was what we now call roll-ups. Mm. Uh, I didn't. I didn't even know we were in the M and A business. And uh, so we we did a roll-up uh, in environmental uh, engineering. Then we did uh, one in uh, drug development, which was the most successful one. It was a classic roll-up. And uh, I'm trying to just kind of fast forward to get to where we are today. So we ended up being the roll-up guys. We design roll-ups in technical spaces, and um, and then execute them. We'd you know we'd fund part of it. We'd use private equity for some of the funding, and we'd grow them and we'd we'd sell them or re recapitalize them, make money. But uh, one day, and and I'll I'll get to the end of my my question here. But one day, uh, we were doing a a roll-up in civil engineering in Florida, very what we call a mini roll-up, a little local. Okay. Roll and one of the targets was a CEO of a, a civil engineering firm. So I went to meet with her and she says, you know, David, this roll-up stuff, you know, it's too long-term. We just want to sell the company. Can you just uh, find a buyer? I said, well, we don't do that. I mean, that's, we are the buyers that only, you know, we buy companies and we put them in roll-ups, but we've, we're not in that business, but I could. And she goes, David, you're in M&A. You, uh, you've been doing this a long time. Obviously, you obviously you know people that would want to buy our company. I said, well, I, maybe, I guess so. But I'm not really in M&A. We're in the environmental ingenu in, in engineering business. She says, no, David, you're in M&A. Mm -hmm. Everything you're doing is M&A. And I went, oh, you mean like mergers and acquisitions? And that's how we I just stumbled in to doing this. And she says, well, come on. You, you know, I just want to get the company sold. So, I decided we'd take on our first paying client. We changed the name from environmental ingenuity to e-ingenuity or the ingenuity group. And um, we found her a buyer. And then somebody else heard that we were doing that. And we found a buyer for that company. And then a couple of private equity companies we'd worked with, they heard that we were doing this for clients. And they hired us to do what we call, everybody calls now, buy side, uh, to find companies and get them to the table. And 
And that's how we stumbled into what we do today. And that was about eight years ago. And uh, today, uh, when we first started, uh, laid out a business plan and, and you know, I figured, well, we've got to learn about all these industries and, you know, be an expert in all this stuff. And I said, no, this is ridiculous. We're not experts in any of this, this other stuff. I wouldn't know how to sell or or buy a cosmetic company or a transportation mm-hmm. company if, if my life depended on it. I don't know anything about it. And so, and so we decided we'll just do what we know best. And as architecture, engineering, construction, geotech, anything in the built environment. And uh, we've been doing it ever since. And and that's that's a, a long, sorry, a long answer to a very, uh, very short question. Well, it, it, it helps give us perspective where you were literally in a business or an industry at its outset. And you watched it as, as it matured, and then you were, you know, wise enough to pivot when you when when the time was right and move into other areas. And it's it's that experience that everybody is trying to leverage when they want to go ahead and take their company and move it to the next level. So I think that is absolutely uh, tremendous. With what you're doing, um, did you ever target? And I don't understand. Excuse me, I'm not as familiar with the architects and engineering industry. Do those companies, do they get very, very large or is it largely mostly smaller fragmented things? So you have to be in the lower middle market. Well, uh, you know, in, in M&A, we refer to the shape of the pyramid. Um, okay. you, when you got steep pyramids, that means you've got a very few small companies and a lot of big uh, conglomerates. And when your pyramid gets very shallow, that means it's made up of hundreds and thousands of little mom and pop companies and very few large ones. And that is the architecture industry. Mm-hmm. Engineering has got a little bit steeper pyramid. In other words, there are a few more, uh, say, over 50 million in revenue than there are, say, in architecture, over 50 million in revenue. So as a result, they, it's always been a good world. That AEC world is a good one for roll-ups because mm-hmm. roll-up, you, you really need a very fragmented industry where any one of them really does not have a good market. They might sell for 2X, 3X, but if you can offer them that plus rollover equity where they can actually play with the big boys in value, then mm-hmm. roll-ups are very attractive to them. So, no, there's not there are not a lot of huge ones. Um, mo- the average size architecture firm is seven or eight employees. That's, that's okay. the average size. Yeah. Now, there are big ones. We represent right now one of the largest architecture firms in the country. There and, and that... Is only they're only about eighty million a year, and that's one of the largest. And mm-hmm. so, of the, and they're about number twenty-five. So the other twenty-four are a little bit larger than that. But even the largest one uh, would be Gensler. Uh, they're you know they're they're very large, but they do like uh, maybe you know five hundred million or six hundred million. But they're they're just a handful of those. In engineering, though, there are more simply because mm-hmm. they're more engineers. They're more engineering subsets than architecture has. You've got civil. Mm-hmm you know, all, all this. And there's different licensing requirements and, and, and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I think what's great about this uh, and why I really appreciate you being here today is that you've got a lot of, you know, lower middle market and even below that business owners out there, owners and founders, and they want to either move to the next level or move on and exit. And they don't know where to turn. And they they know their craft, they know their profession, but they don't know mergers and acquisitions and, and no. what it takes to take that step. So it's great having a resource like you available because without someone like you 
and, and the ingenuity group, a lot of these owners and founders are going to default and go to either really small, inexperienced, low capacity business brokers, nothing wrong with it, but for these professional services, right. that's a chance. Or if they're a bit more sizable and successful, they default to a, an institution. Yeah. And the institution exactly. doesn't know their industry, doesn't like how small they are, and you know they'll they'll yeah. be underserved and 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 they'll overpay and be underserved, and it's just you yeah. know that's not yeah. appropriate. But you don't know where to go. That's why it's, it's so great having you and the ingenuity group here because, quite frankly, I'm in, I've been in M and A since 2016. I had never heard of a specialty for just for architects and engineering right. firms. So this is very, very exciting. And, you know, the universe continues to expand. As, well, as it, we you know, it's, it's, a, it's a small niche. Uh, you know, obviously, if we wanted to get, be be a big firm, which we don't, I've already done that, already built these big, mm -hmm. uh, uh, fast-growing companies and got many, I've got many awards from, I've got the Inc. number nine award, Inc. number 34 award for fast-growing companies that we put together by roll-up, mostly. But um, I like this industry because not only do we do, as, as we say to our clients, when we first meet them, we say the difference in us and, and, and somebody else is that, that we know the difference between a, a single loaded quarter and a double loaded quarter. And we can talk to you about it in detail. <laughs> and, they, and they like that. I mean, we do surveys of our clients and they always come back and they say, that's why we hired you is because you're not just a generalist. You, you really know this industry. And so we figure we can just do a, a better job. But, you know, the one of the biggest problems we have in the M&A world, and I think I don't think this is just my opinion, it, it's a very it's a relatively unregulated industry. Uh, yes, we have we have FINRA and that's very narrowly, you know, that's that's for investment banks that deal with securities and, and whatnot. And most people don't deal with securities, not in the lower middle market. Mm -hmm. So we're not FINRA uh, licensed, nor do we want to be because we don't want to be be there. And then on the other end, we're, we're in the middle. The investment banks are here. The M&A transaction advisory firms are here. And then there's this thousands of business brokers out there. Yeah. And, and like you said, no, no, no hit to a business broker, but it's a different model. It's more like selling a house, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, they have a listing sheet. They got a standard, you know, one page contract and they're, they hope that they can sell it. They'll put a listing out on their website, just like you go to an MLS for a house listing. And if something happens, it happens. But that's not what transaction advisors do. We, we, we do heavy research into the databases, to determine who are they going to be the best buyers or the best sellers for the for our buy side. And we do about half buy side, half, half sell side. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, it's very unregulated. Anybody can hang their shingle out there and say that they're a that they're a M&A specialist. Uh, I mean, short of FINRA and short of a couple of states requiring crazy real estate licenses for business brokers, uh, it's very unregulated. And and because it's unregulated, there's no, that I know of, it's not a good, solid educational infrastructure to teach business owners and business, uh, well, business owners about business yeah. And they need to know M&A because what they normally do is they, they rush and rush to build their company, pay the bills, keep the cash flow going, deal with the headaches, the lawsuits, you know, and all this. And when they finally burn out that, or they get to an age where they, they need to retire, they're 64, 65, and all of a sudden they go, I want to sell the company. And they start calling a business broker or if, or if they understand that, you know, that transaction advisors for their size might be a better level, they, they'll call us. But they, they're very uneducated. Not that they're uneducated 
formally, right. they're uneducated in this industry. And some I mean, it's, it's inexperienced. Yeah, it's yeah, just, it, it's, it's, just it's, some of it, it. Well, it's absolutely foreign concepts to most sellers. A lot of times I'll ask uh, my guests, you know, what are you doing apart from all the other hundreds or thousands of investment bankers or PE firms out there? What makes you different? Clearly, your presence and your your experience in this sector of, of architects and engineers is unparalleled. I think what's additionally helpful is for whether you've got a buy side client or a sell side client, because you handle both you know what the other side is thinking or what the other side is looking out for. So if you've got a sell-side client, you're ideally prepared to advise them saying, you need to focus on these features of your business because a buyer, this is what the buyer is going to look for. Exactly. With a buyer, I would think on the buyer side, it's kind of, well, not only finding a good qualified uh, target, but are they even in the market? And, you know, and right. I think you can find out that because you've been there, you know, the triggers where somebody may be very resistant to they're wide open and they're going to be very accommodating. So I, I think that really helps out. Yeah, it does. You know, what we like to say to our when we initially meet a sell side uh, client is we say we look at this whole process from the buyer's eyes because we were mm-hmm. buyers for 35 years. We know how a buyer, what a buyer is looking for. We know what the red flags, I want to say we know, I know most of it, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know what the red flags are that'll just kill a deal right off the bat. And we always Mm -hmm. say that I want to know those red flags before a buyer tells me about them. So I look at it from a buyer's eye. We run a valuation from a buyer's eye. We have good valuation models we've built over all these decades. And we usually get pretty close to what the market, you know, is going to uh, going to pay. You know, give us a profile of of the ideal client that you're looking to serve. Obviously, clearly, an architectural, environmental, or you know, engineering firm. Yes, but <clears throat> you 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 handle deals throughout the country. Size. Give give us a profile of what you're looking for. Who who do you best serve? We we will take on a client as small as say. Five million in revenue, maybe one million mm-hmm. EBITDA. That's really kind of our bottom. We work better I, in the ten, the ten to fifty, hundred million, you know, in that area. Well, I, I just think the value you add by staging up the company the right way has has got to lead to you know an extra turn on on the EBITDA. So I I think that's just an investment to move forward. Also, I would think that. Your clients uh, from the Ingenuity Group, they tend, the buyers know where the quality assets are. And so if someone is being represented by the Ingenuity Group, I have a feeling you're going to get the best level of the buyer's attention there and you'll get, you know, final execution. Well, I'd like to think so. (laughs) Well, I I can imagine just the whole, you know, operations and just the feel of mergers and acquisitions when you started in the 80s is nine day different from where it is oh. today. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. I would think that one, one of the biggest uh, differences out there that wasn't around in the 80s or 90s uh, was the presence of rep warranty insurance, which Absolutely. was the ability of the insurance company to come in and transfer some of that indemnification risk between buyer and seller. And instead of having the two sides pointing at each other in the event of a breach of the seller reps, 
that could be taken away. And, you know, don't take my word for it, David, good, better, and different. What's been your experience with breath and warranty insurance? Well, first of all, as we all know, this is a very litigious society we live in. The business society is so litigious compared to even when we started 40 years ago. Everybody's suing everybody for everything. And, and liability is such a uh, such an underlying theme these days in transactional uh, work, like what we do and and uh, what you do, that uh, you've got to really pay, uh, pay attention to it. One of the hardest things that, that we deal with when we're negotiating with the buyer or, well, or the seller, uh, when it comes to whether it's going to be an asset sale or a stock purchase or a 338 exchange or a you know, uh, you know, some other kind of structure is how tight are these reps and warranties? How extensive are they going to be for the seller that normally doesn't understand any of this? Remember, this is not very far into them where when an asset, you know, an asset deal, you've got two or three pages, maybe, maybe even on a, a big asset deal, you might have two pages uh, reps and warranties. I mean, you're not repping much, uh, but on stock deal, you might have 60 pages of reps and warranties. Maybe yeah. that's an exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. Might, a lot. 15, yes. 15 yes. 20 pages. And you're you're repping to everything to the point where we say, you know, on a stock deal, it's going to be hard to sleep at night because you're going to be worrying about, you know, all of this. Mm-hmm. And so they go, well, what are we going to do? Yeah, we'll sign this and we'll stand behind it. And many times we say, you, you probably ought to get reps and warranties insurance. It's it's probably going to be cheaper than all the sleeping pills and the therapy you're going to yeah. need sleeping. And yeah. We see as we get a little bit larger, the issue of needing reps and warranty insurance. I think everybody should have it, but they're not, everybody's not going to buy it. But as you yeah. get larger, they do. And they'll listen to when we tell them and the lawyer, you know, normally we, by that time, we're working pretty tight, closely with the mm-hmm. sell side or buy side lawyer, and he'll tell them the same thing. Yeah. And so uh, we're seeing a trend that more and more people are needing it. There's still resistance of spending the money. Yes. Although it's a, you know, it's a, uh, it's an it's, it's a good way to sleep at night. Well, the- what's what's great about that is that reps and warranties were originally designed for larger deals, where it, and we're talking transactions of one hundred million dollars and up. Right. And you had very sophisticated due diligence. You had a lot of information. You had audited financials. There were a lot of things that underwriters could access to evaluate the risks as as deals. You know. On the lower end, sub 50 million, those got tougher to underwrite and they were very, very expensive. And a lot of times the insurance carriers just wouldn't uh, cover them. They just said, look, I'm sorry, it's, it's just too small to be eligible for what we did. And also the deal parties really couldn't justify the cost of right. spending six figures just to get all the diligence reports to qualify for insurance, which was a six figure other other bill. It's been nice. And one of the reasons why, you know, we're talking today as well is that in the world of architects and engineers, many of those companies in that flattened pyramid probably have a purchase price of $30 million or less. And what's nice is there is a new insurance product out there. It's called TLPE, Transaction Liability Private Enterprise. It is a policy designed exclusively for transactions that are under $30 million, all the way down to a million dollars of purchase price. It is ideally situated for professional services firms, just like these. 
And it is what we call a sell-side policy where the policyholder is the seller. So we don't rely on the buyer. We just got to go ahead and cover the seller. Right. And it is triggered in the event that if there's a breach of the seller reps, buyer notifies the seller of the breach, seller no- forwards that notification up to underwriters, policy is triggered. Underwriters will assign a, an attorney to negotiate a settlement with a buyer, just like on a buy side rep and warranty policy. So it is a mirror image. Yeah. At a cost of $15,000 to $20,000 per million dollars in limits, okay, this is a very inexpensive option. There's no underwriting fee, and the processing time takes days, not weeks. And so what we wanted to do is to have a product that was scalable for the lower middle market that, you know, you wanted to be able to issue a lot of policies that are simple, straightforward, and inexpensive so we can, you know, grow by volume rather than, you know, by, yep, by size. Exactly. And, and I think this is a great area because like you said, uh, there's no substitute for peace of mind, particularly when you've got a, you know, quite, frank, quite frankly, a life changing event for a lot of owners and founders. And this is a great way to bring this forward. And um, we, we couldn't be happy with how the market has developed uh, to meet this new need. Well, you, you've, you've come in at a timely, uh, you know, they say, uh, they say the sign of a good entrepreneur is not that he knows when he's there and at the right, he's, he's there at the right time and place, but he, that he has the guts to jump on it and, and yeah. execute and you've, you're coming in at a time where where it's absolutely critical because these these mom and pop companies they cannot afford traditional reps and warranty insurance. Uh, it's just simply too high too high for them. Yeah, they, and they can't put their arms around yeah what that damage suit would be for a death of a child on that water slide compared you know and, and what's the probability of that and all that they can't get their arms around that at that small size. But the risk. The risk of some tail happening at a ten million dollar a year company versus a hundred million dollar, those deaths still cost the same. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's not near as much quality control with on the smaller companies to uh, you know to kind of offset that risk. Where bigger companies have sophisticated QA, QC programs, you know, better training, better safety training, mm-hmm. and all that. So, so actually, it's the smaller ones that probably need it more. Yes, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're thinking. We're just hoping that some of the some of the checks we have to cut aren't going to be as large as $150 million deals, but also they're simpler, they're a little more straightforward. So we feel so far this program has been around for two years. And as the rep and warranty insurance market, it started very slow, then exponentially went up where it's literally ubiquitous. Yeah. On deals north of seventy million dollars, so I we're we're very happy that at least we have something that's meeting a need for you know owners and founders who really can't afford to lose a million dollars, and sure. and so you know we're we're very proud of of the industry for coming up with this. Mm-hmm. Now, David, we're right at the beginning of the year, fresh new year, clean slate. What do you see out there? What are your trends that you're expecting to see either for the Ingenuity Group or M and A in general? You know, our vantage point is not a big overview umbrella of the market. We're so focused into a niche of, of, um, of you know, the built environment firms that yes. we look at everything kind of from that. Like we look at that and then we look out as opposed to looking in. And what everybody, what's on everybody's mind right now are interest rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, interest rates tr- affect our clients tremendously. 
because they're in the in the business of designing something. It's either a bridge or a building or something. And if these projects are not going to, they can't get funded or they can't pro forma it out with ten and eleven percent uh, term debt where they were used to four. I mean, not four, but you know, five and six percent term debt. The, the projects are getting put on hold. Yeah. They're getting pushed. They're getting canceled. And the architecture ingenuity uh, in, in engineering community is having a very hard time forecasting uh, for their labor, you know, for uh, just for, their, you know, how much revenue they're, they're going to be able to, to bring in. And then if it's going to be a downturn, how they how are they are they going to keep the staff and suffer on the EBITDA line? They're going to lay off staff to maintain the percentage EBITDA. Mm-hmm. It, interest rates are kind of the governing thing right now in the AEC world, the architecture, engineering, construction world. Mm-hmm. And it kind of backs up from construction because if if, a, if the clients take a big real estate developer that's got a big multi-million dollar development uh, plan, but all of a sudden, you know, the rates that he hadn't performed for have, have gone up or it's even tight to even get the loans then what's going to happen to that development? They're going to have to send a notice to the architect, to the engineers. We're going to be slowed down. We're going to postpone this. Whoop, where are you going to put these people to work? You all of a sudden lost this. So that's the big thing right now. And there is market compression, uh, especially in the um, um, kind of more in the architecture side, because that gets more into the front end of a planned yeah. development project than engineering yeah. does. So there is there is compression. Uh, going on. Uh, everybody's trying to speculate of when the Fed's going to lighten up. Uh, and like you and I were, were saying uh, earlier, uh, it's probably not going to happen in the first half of the year. I'm not an economist, but I just read and what everybody reads. And, uh, so that that's the big tight thing. So as a result, what we're seeing now, that's what we are seeing with our clients now. But what we're seeing as a result of that is more of an acceptance and more demand on us for coming up with creative financing rather than traditional yes. firm debt financing. Yeah. So where three years ago, almost all deals would have for, for the cash component, there would be a hunk that was term debt, hunk that was equity that came right out of a PE fund, mm-hmm. and then whatever the other back end stuff like notes and rollover equity. But what we're seeing now, we're seeing now is more rollover equity, mm-hmm. more 51% deals. Mm. Uh, and with rollover equity, and we're fi- we're finding more and more even uh, of the of the cash they want the uh, seller to finance, and so we're we're finding it the demand's higher, but the uh, but also the sellers are more uh, agreeable now to mm. take yeah. a ten percent on the back end on a mm. say a seven percent interest rate note than they were before. Before yes. they said, heck no, we're not going to do that. They can go to the bank. But they know they yes. can't go to the bank now. So if they want to get their company sold without a, a big discount, they need to play ball in the financing. And so that's the biggest trend right now we're, we're seeing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think creativity and acceptance of the creativity for structure is definitely something that's going to stay with us for a while. And uh, as you and I spoke before we got on uh, to this show, um, there's a possibility in an election year where we're not going to see any massive increases, but I don't think we're going to see the decreases coming for a while. And so, you know, if, if, if the sentiment out there in the investment community is, oh, great, things are great because we're not going to see rates go up. Yeah, but they're already still pretty high. 
I'm going to see some material uh, reductions before I think, you know, you can open up the floodgates. But I believe that in the lower middle market, there are a lot of other forces that are happening that right. just particularly, you know, time hasn't stopped. And we've got a lot of owners and founders that are not getting any younger. And so I think right. that's why they're being compelled to creativity. And I would say anybody that is in the A&E and construction space really should reach out and look for David and his team at the Ingenuity Group because uh, it, it, there's one thing you know is you know where the buyers are. And if you're if you're selling, you always want to know who knows the buyers. So David Kimbrell of the Ingenuity Group, how can our audience members find you? Well, you can just call me. <laughs> We're not too formal around here. Uh, my, my cell phone is uh, 785-766. 1756. Again, that's 785 766 1756. Our website is eingenuity.com. That's with two E's E N N G N I N U I T Y.com with two E's on the front of ingenuity. And, um, and my address is, uh, is D and then Kimbrell, K I M B R E L L at eingenuity.com. But it's all on the website. You can get it there. That'd be great. It'll also be in our show notes, too. So if you look up Rubicon on Apple iTunes and pull up David Kimbrell's uh, um, interview there, we've got the show notes there so we can get some. David Kimbrell of the Ingenuity Group. I mean, absolute pleasure meeting you. And thanks for being here today. Well, thank you so much uh, for having me, Patrick. And we'll, we'll be talking soon.